I'm Lisa Bryant. I'm Leanne Gibbs. And I'm Liam McNicholas. And this is the Early Education Show. A fortnightly look at the policy, politics and practice of Australia's early education sector. The Early Childhood Voices Conference is a free, international, multidisciplinary, fully online conference about innovations in early education. International speakers will present research in a virtual online space about innovations to improve the lives of children, families and practitioners during early childhood, all within the early education sector. It can be very difficult for early childhood professionals to access or afford high quality professional development. So this is an excellent opportunity that we wanted to find out more about. So to do that, we're joined by one of the lead organisers of the event, Dr Tamara Cumming, and four of the presenters who will be sharing their presentations during the conference. Professor Sue Dockett, Professor Bob Perry, Professor Gail Gillen, and someone who may be quite familiar to listeners of the podcast, Leanne Gibbs. I'd like to welcome Tamara, Sue, Bob, Gail to the show, and Leanne, of course. It feels a bit weird introducing her, even though she's here most week, most uh, fortnights. But um, I must start with Tamara, who is a senior lecturer with the School of Teacher Education and the Charles Sturt University research fellow and I think this will now be your third appearance on the podcast tomorrow we need to get you like a, a jumper or a jacket for the for the three-timer club but um why don't we start with you know where where has the early childhood voices conference come from oh well thank you so much for having us all on the show Liam and and promoting early childhood voices um the conference um so the idea for the conference sprang from well it was really a, a happy um uh, outcome of, of COVID, really. Um, we all had fantastic research that we'd been doing. We knew our colleagues had great research they wanted to share, but nowhere to share it because the conferences all had to be cancelled. Um, and we thought it would be a fantastic thing to do for the sector, um, for there to be a focal point to, to promote what's been happening um, with early childhood research um, in the um, the recent past. And I guess we were also prompted by um, the new executive dean of the Faculty of Arts and Ed at CSU, um, who, who's really um, prompted us to, to think big. And uh, we certainly, we thought big and we made it big and it's going to be big, Liam. I've heard there's, was it, I, I don't want to get the number wrong, because I'm wrong, but it, 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 we're talking many thousands of um, yeah, registration. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're up to over two thousand one hundred regis registrations now, um, from incredible. over seventy countries. So a, a very wide variety of countries, and we just couldn't be more delighted that um, we've been able to facilitate this connection for people from places as diverse as you know the United Arab Emirates, Iceland, Malaysia, Brazil, Moldova. Zambia, you know, as well as all of our, um, our sort of more regular favourites, I suppose. But we've got presenters from 17 different countries. And as I said, um, people have registered from over 70 countries. So it's really exciting. So can you tell us a bit tomorrow about the sort of structure of the conference? Because it is, yeah. um, you know, uh, quite unusual, at least, at least yes. to me. I'm a bit of a, you know, boring conference person. You, you rock up, you get your... Uh, slightly dodgy wrap and um, coffee <laughs> and then, you know, shuffle into an auditorium and then come back out. But this is, 
this is going to look pretty different, isn't it? Well, this one is going to look pretty different because you could even stay in your pajamas if you wanted to, Liam. Um, we've got. Uh, I'm on board. I'm on board. I'm sure, I am sure you won't be the only one. So the great thing about this conference being completely online is that it's uh, it's also asynchronous, and that means that people can watch it in their own time zone in at a time that suits them. So what we're going to do is um, the presentations are now all going to be on the CSU. Um, corporate YouTube channel because the response was just so big, quite quite literally we would have broken our website if we tried to upload all the presentations and had those thousands of people trying to stream them. So there'll be um, a really organised playlist on YouTube that people can access. We're also supplying anybody who registers gets one of our um, abstract booklets so people can um, very easily find out uh, which presentations they might like to view. And then because it's YouTube, they can use the functionality of YouTube to make up their own little lists and um, uh, save them and, and do all of those um, really cool things with it. But so basically once people registered from Monday morning, they'll be able to access all of the content and um, view it in their own time. I think it's it's such a fantastic response, I think, to the the challenges that have been put on us this year. Now, I know we've all had to become sort of experts at online meetings and presentations this year, but are you able to sort of talk about, um, maybe not just what the challenges have been, but are there, have there been some yeah. unexpected you know, positives or benefits about oh, having to play yes. into this look, contest? Look, it's been fantastic. You know, we've pulled this together in five months with no budget. Um, but the great thing is, and this doesn't surprise me, is that we've, we've established last year an early childhood research group at Charles Sturt University. And it includes people from early childhood education, but also speech pathology. And this is partly why it's called Early Childhood Voices, and I hope we'll get to that. But... Um, that's meant that we've got a very strong group of people who've come together as a conference committee and have just all contributed their expertise and their time. We've found fantastic um, new collaborations with people in our own faculty whom none of us had known before. Um, these people with fantastic web expertise. We've had fantastic support from CSU social media and media. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's, it's actually been wonderful at a time when really we're all feeling a little bit isolated. It's given us a way to reconnect and to, in fact, meet new people. And, you know, these people keep telling us how excited they are to be involved in our conference. And they're really, you know, buoyed by the energy of it and also its purpose. I think it goes very well with um, Charles Sturt's corporate um, ethos and, you know, really reminds people why we do the work that we do. So that there have been an enormous number of positives and very honestly, very few negatives. We've been we've been very fortunate. Well, maybe tell us a bit. So that title, Early Childhood Voices, mm. I think is fantastic. So mm. what's the what's what's the thinking there? Yeah. So um, the other co-organiser of the conference is Professor Sharon McLeod, and she's just a powerhouse um, in the speech pathology world. She's um, um, the world um, ex a world leader, um, has been voted twice twice, um, two years in a row, the world leader in her field. So she's someone very special. And Sharon suggested Early Childhood Voices because she's very passionate about children's rights and children's rights to communication. And I think that's fantastic because it goes so well with 
um, what in early childhood we talk about to do with children's um, rights according to the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. And so from a sort of speechy perspective as well, they're feeling the same thing. Um, they certainly believe in those rights plus those of um, all children, including those um, with disabilities, to have the rights to communicate. So that's that was our overarching theme. And um, you know the, the the presentations that have come out of that are so exciting. We've literally got things about children's voices um, and children's rights, early learning and development, reading and literacy, and then a whole um, raft of exciting things to do with speech acquisition, um, linguistic multi-competence, home ling language maintenance, all those sorts of things that are really of interest to both um, speech pathologists and education people working in the early childhood sector. But the other exciting thing is that its voices um, has allowed for a lot of the kind of critical perspectives that I'm quite interested in myself. Um, and so we're getting things um, like professionals' voices, their experiences of COVID, um, things to do with um, vulnerable communities, gender, um, also families' voices and Indigenous voices, um, also the voices of service providers. So, um, in fact, Sharon's vision for voices has enabled a really great range of presentations, but still within this cohesive theme. Well, I think you've done a great job, Tamara, in less than 10 minutes of convincing people that they should <laughs> definitely be signing up. So maybe before we go yes. to hear from some of the voices we will be hearing at Early Childhood, voices. Um, where can people, so this, uh, the, the conference uh, starts on Monday the 16th of November, so where I think this episode should be out on uh, the Friday just beforehand, so you yes. will have, um, when you're hearing this, you won't have too much longer to, to register, but you yes. absolutely should. So where should people go if they want yes. to either find out more or register? Yeah, absolutely. So do remember it's free, um, free to register, free to access. So if you go to our website, which is Early Childhood Research dot csu dot domains backslash early childhood voices conference 2020 maybe liam i could i could give you a link if that's okay but basically if you googled early childhood voices 2020 you would find it you can register for free we'll provide you um, with a link and we're keeping registrations open all of next week so even if it gets to tuesday and you think oh no i forgot it's not too late wonderful and we'll definitely have a link to the conference in the show notes and um you know, I think I speak for uh, Leanne and Lisa and I were saying we would absolutely very strongly recommend being part of this. Uh, Thank um, you. Really kind and of I, I love the ideas of um, the, the sort of being put forward when I've heard people talking about it too, Tamara, about how they might mm. co-view this and have a discussion oh, about it. And um, and actually our team, we have a team meeting next week and one of our agenda items is to watch something together and to have a discussion about it. So I think it's really fantastic although it's virtual yeah. it's very going to be very locally engaging as well yeah thanks Leanne Liam can I just say one more thing which is that as part of the program um, guide we've included um, sort of a, a professional development prompt which is encouraging people to do exactly what Leanne's talking about and in fact the conference committee is all meeting every every day for an hour next week to jointly um you know, watch watch a couple of presentations and then have a discussion about it. But we've included some discussion prompts as well as some ideas about how to choose. How do you choose from 90 presentations what you'd like to watch? So we've just included some of those um, hints and, and tips for people in the guide as well. 
That's wonderful. So it's great to see there are some you know, additional resources for people to, to find there. But what we might do now is um, go to the uh, our first uh, pair of presenters. So I should be relatively well known to many listeners out there at the sector. I should say I'm pretty excited. I've read a lot of their books as part of my studies. Uh, it's, it's, it's really great to be talking with them today. Um, but uh, to hear from Sue Dockett and Bob Perry, who will be presenting at the conference. Um, now, Sue and Bob are professors uh, emeriti. I've, I've never actually had to say that word before. Have I pronounced that even close to, I know how to say emeritus, but not. Is Your guess emeriti. is as good as ours. <laughs> <laughs> so they are professors emeriti, which is what we're going for at Charles Sturt University. Combined, they had more than 80 years of successful oh, experience teaching and <laughs> and researching in tertiary institutions. And they continue to contribute to their major research fields of educational transitions and mathematics education through research consultancy and publication, both nationally and internationally. Uh, and I was uh, very fortunate. I, I, I felt like I was getting a peek behind the curtain. Tamara very kindly sent me the uh, abstracts from the presentations and I was really interested to read on uh, the invisible transitions to school that you'll be presenting on. So uh, welcome to the Early Education Show, but can you tell us a bit about your your, your uh, contribution to this conference next week. Uh, thanks, Liam. That's great. And it, I mean, the conference um, is really going to be quite fantastic. So Tamara, congratulations to you and your team for putting it together. It's really exciting. I think um, Bob and I have decided that I'll start and, and he'll sort of pick up some um, some more points as we go along and probably um, give you some more detail than I omit. So let's see how we go. Um, as you've said, Liam, um, we've been researching, particularly in the areas of transition to school and what happens during that transition for, for a long time. And um, it, it's you would sometimes expect that it you know, becomes boring after all that many years, but it's, it's always a really interesting challenge to talk with kids and families and educators as they really take that, um, that really important step to start school. We've noticed a whole lot of changes in how people approach transition and many of those are positive. Some of them are a bit more challenging. Um, but one of the trends we've noticed over the last few years in our conversations is what we've termed invisible transitions. We've got a fairly stable pattern in Australia of what the sequence of education is, if you'd like. So and there's a fairly standard pattern that children move from home into early childhood education, be it preschool or childcare or family daycare or whatever, and then they move on to school. And in between the early childhood service and school, they usually participate in something called a transition to school program. And, and that happens for the majority of kids the majority of time. And it's really become a normalised pattern so much so that children who don't attend early childhood services, who perhaps don't participate in a transition program, or who just arrive at the very beginning of the school year, are seen to be some way deficient or abnormal because they haven't followed that normal pattern. And yet in many of the schools that we've worked in across several states, there's a large proportion of children that almost arrive unknown to the school. Um, and so we're interested to know, well, what's happening for them? In theory, we'd like to say that their transition that very first day they get to school and that we can provide a whole range of options to help them build up the same confidence and relationships that will help them start school. But I would have to say that in a number of circumstances, the general response was when we asked when we asked what was happening for those kids was, well, we don't really do anything. It's too late or um, they just have to fit in or 
if we don't hear anything from them, if there's no trouble, then we assume it's all okay. And, and so we've really referred to those as invisible transitions because those kids and families are not following the usual normalised path in a sense. Um, they're arriving, but they're almost invisible because they're not really being the focus of a particular approach or engagement or interaction um, or a whole range of, of things that would make their start to school much more positive. And there's, there's a whole range of ways we can tie that in with that notion of social invisibility and kids may be feeling or families may be feeling like they're being ignored or that they're not really valued. And, and we believe that there's a real challenge there to work on how we, we might make that transition or how we might propose a transition approach that recognises those transitions as important and provides them in all sorts of positive ways. We've been reassured to know that there are a whole a number of schools that have really taken that notion on board and are recognising a range of invisible transitions and working towards a whole school plan, if you like, for transition. But we really want to highlight that idea that once you start to have those normalised pathways, anyone who deviates from that and doesn't follow that normal path, if you like, is, is considered to be at a disadvantage or to have some form of deficit. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting chance to explore, to ask, to ask some questions um, and to hear how people are choosing to deal with it. Wouldn't you say, Bob? I think that's right. When when you believe that transition to school is about building relationships among people, then many of these children who come to the school, maybe on day one, maybe later in the year, um, simply don't have time to build those same relationships as the children who have done the normal transition to school program. Um, they have to, they're told very quickly that they need to get into the curriculum, start learning and do all those sorts of things. Um, which I suspect I'll do anyway, but um, they're not given the same sort of opportunities. And what we found is that every school will have some of these children turn up during the year, maybe not necessarily in, in the first year of school, maybe later in the year, and those children deserve an effective transition program for them. It's It's one of their rights to to have that transition program. And we believe that given the amount of time and effort that goes into the normalised transition to school programming, the, the planning of that, the implementation and so on, then similar amounts of time should be spent preparing for the children that we don't know about that as we go through. So, you know, we, we are concerned to know just what's going on what can happen and how it can happen. Um, and we've found that in some schools, there may only be one or two children who come into the first year of school without being known by the school, maybe through their early childhood settings or through the transition program. But in one of the schools that we dealt with as part of this study, there was 68% of the first year of school cohort that the school didn't know about before day one. And that's a massive disruption to the school, but it's not the children's fault. In many cases, it's not the, the family's fault. There are all sorts of circumstances as to why children might be 
unknown to the school before they arrive on day one or day three or whatever. Um, and we need to deal with them. We need to help them cope in the best way possible. And we need them to build up the relationships which we know are extremely important as they go through the rest of their schooling and as they do learn and engage with school. I, I can see that Leanne was looking like she wanted to ask a question. <laughs> well, I, I because there's so many of us, I did use the hand raising, so I was hoping that um, that, that was saying I thought it's very appropriate for a school environment, um, but, <laughs> or not. Um, I was thinking with this, that was very interesting, the 68%, and I'm wondering, and this might not be something that you're kind of covering off in your keynote, but do you think that... Um, COVID has kind of shone a light on some of these similar challenges because there will be children coming to school who have had no transition to school for various reasons and um, it, is it something that that is being considered in this, this I, I think um, period? Yeah, I think that's a really good point because um, there will be children and families um, who don't participate in transition activities even if they're available because you can understand you know, all sorts of anxiety and, and challenges. But it's also the case that many states and territories have changed their transition practices for going into school next year so that some of the more traditional things that have been associated with transition are not happening. Um, you know, for example, there's not large gatherings of, of parents or children or all sorts of things. So a, a number of those practices you know, are, are changing and what a great chance it is to reflect on what changes might be positive. Um, but I think you're right in that there'll not only be children coming into school um, who've not participated in formal transition activities, but there'll be a whole range who come to school who may have had disrupted early childhood. So they may have been at preschool or childcare for a while and out for a while and back again. But there'll also be um, children at school who've started the first year of school, had time away, come back for a bit, had time away again. And the whole notion of invisible transitions urges us to look at what's going to happen for those kids as they move into year one. So it's trying to broaden that notion of transition and say, yes, the activities and the programs can be important, but if we really believe that transition is about building the resorts of relationships, that help everyone move forward, then we've got to look beyond um, what we've called our normalised or our standard transition programs. Yeah, it's going to be a very, very interesting time in terms of um, reflective practice, isn't it? And what actually is what, what is a, ostensibly a transition as a standard or, or how that might have to change. Sorry, and Bob, I interrupted you. No, no, I, I think that one of the things that is really important is that for for more than 20 years, groups of children, individual children, have been telling us that there are two things that are really important as they start school. One of them is about having friends, and the other one is about knowing what's going to happen at the school. They usually couch that in terms of rules, but uh, both of those things depend on building relationships with each other and with the, the staff at the school. And, and the early childhood settings, of course, who are very important in building those relationships too. It, in the current circumstances, it's much more difficult to do that in, in, um, in terms of not being able to mix with your friends, um, not being able to even meet other people 
during a transition program and so on. And so we need to look at what happens when the children do eventually get to school and how much of that first term of school is actually going to be necessarily about transition to school. So there you have it. <laughs> Thanks, Liam. Thanks. Liam, can I, can I sort of, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm sort of putting my, my two cents worth in there. I just, what I, I, I love at, in hearing Bob and Sue talk about this, first of all, as a researcher, I think this is the benefit of having, um, you know, such a long, consistent um, program of research that, you know, Bob and Sue have, have you know, had the time that, they notice this and this becomes something that they can follow up on in itself. But I just, you know, in all of what Bob and Sue said, I heard children's voices and children's rights and also social justice, which I think is really important. Um, you know, it's not just even that the children, well, the children are at school, but what happens when they're there, that that there's a um, an equitable setting for everybody, I think is a, a really important part of what Bob and Sue are, are talking about. Thanks, Tamara. Yes, Tamara, I think I think that really is very important. And and we've seen many examples of, uh, you know, refugee children, for example, often will will feature as invisible transitions as they they turn up unexpectedly and, and so on and have specific needs that they need to have met in terms to, you know, in terms of feeling that they may actually belong in this new place. They've, there are so many differences and new things happening to them that sometimes the school becomes their safe place. And um, the building of those relationships and so on uh, are really important as we exercise the social justice issues around this. Everyone deserves to have an effective transition to school, um, regardless of how they end up coming to school. That's wonderful. Well, as by far and away the least qualified or experienced person in this group, I'm hesitant to say anything at all about the, the, the discussion that's been had. One, the, the only thing I must say, and again, my, my background and experience is very much in the early education sector and within the, um, you know, the birth to five um, space. I've always been interested with transitions. It's clearly, uh, as, you, as you highlighted and, and talked about in terms of the research, such an important part of... Uh, a child's life, not only their educational journey, but these transitions that children will experience throughout their lives. Um, I'm interested, and, and as Tamara's highlighted there, from a from a child's rights perspective and a social justice perspective, the the importance of having the child voice. I'm just wondering about the you know where sort of educators fit in here as well, because I think one of the challenges we experience with transitions is that. We know that educators are often not necessarily resourced as well as they could be, um, even just in thinking in terms of time. I and mean, when, I, when I think about really positive transitions, what that kind of means for me is the time that can be taken to have discussions with children and families and the other education institutions. We know that in Australia in particular, um, educators are under a lot of time pressure and the ability of educators to be um, uh, you know, away from classrooms having these long discussions with um, children, is that something that sort of comes through in your research, Sue and Bob? It's a, a really, really good point because um, very often the focus on transition is is what happens at the place the kids are going to. It's really, really important to focus on where kids and families are coming from as well. Um, 
perhaps the the way I'd like to answer that is is to think back to to what we'll talk about in the keynote and in, in the study we'll report, in that in the communities where there were the least invisible transitions, where there were the fewest number of children starting school unknown, um, a really strong characteristic was that there was a really strong community connection there. There was a real sense of this community values education, so much so that teachers in schools and educators in early childhood services actually knew each other and communicated regularly. It wasn't the sort of big conversation now that there's only a few weeks to go before the kids move off and think about going to school. It was that sort of regular ongoing community interaction among educators where there was a sense that they, everyone was working together, um, families recognised that educators were working together and there was a sense of knowing your community if you like. Um, and so I think there's a really important role there for all educators in the community, whether they're in prior to school services or school services, to make the effort to somehow build a connection that says, you know, we're actually working together. Um, and because we're working together, we can achieve all sorts of things. And that way, families start to trust the different services in the different settings. They start to be a little bit more open and seeking out information and they can get that information from a range of different sources. So I think there's a really important role there for early childhood educators, not to become the experts on transition or the ones that are doing all the work or spending all the time, but to be part of that really strong educational community where everyone seems to be pulling together. I think, Liam, um the, the question of, of building the links between early childhood educators and school educators is critical for all sorts of reasons within early childhood education. But one of the things that we've seen in our transition work is that that link is often the link that builds the trust between the families and the school educators. Simply put, if the families see the early childhood educators and the school educators interacting positively, uh, building a strong trusting relationship and so on. Those families who often do have strong relationships with the early childhood educators say, well, if it's okay then for someone I trust to build a relationship with a school teacher, then I can do that too. So I think it's a, a modeling exercise, which is really very important. The other thing I'd like to say is that We've talked a lot about children's rights and families' rights and so on, but educators have rights as well. And I think we've gone past the times when transition to school programs, which we know are very important for future education, for children's sense of well-being and belonging and, and so on, we've gone past the time where we can uh, resource these um, in some ad hoc way. They need to be planned for as a key part and a core part of both the early childhood setting and the school's resourcing and budget. And I think that um, that's, that's something that is happening in many, many of these schools and communities. And it's the sort of thing that we've noticed in the communities where there are those strong links, because obviously those links have needed time to be taken. wonderful Bob thanks so much what one of the issues I suspected we would have with this episode is I want to spend about an hour with each of you which we just can't do but hopefully 
We can sort of leave I that. Agree, okay. Liam. I've got about 500 <laughs> questions. <laughs> is everyone okay if we just go for about three or four hours? Is that, is that okay? <laughs> we probably can't do that, unfortunately. But um, we, we do need to get to our other guests. But um, hopefully that gives people a bit of a, a teaser. And maybe maybe the, the unanswered questions we have there would be you know, perfect for people to go and uh, join the conference and, and hear more from, from Sue and Bob. But um, uh, I want to turn now to uh, Professor Gail Gillen, um, who I should say... Is joining us from New Zealand, a lovely, beautiful uh, New Zealand app that is, is, is quite late there. So we, we do want to say a big thanks to, um, to Gail for, for joining us so late. But Professor Gillen is the founding director of the Child Wellbeing Research Institute uh, in the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand. Uh, she is the deputy, is also the deputy director of a 10-year national program of research focused on ensuring children's educational success and health wellbeing. Um, and we'll be presenting on the Better Start Literacy Approach uh, next week. So welcome to the podcast, uh, Gail. Uh, can you, I guess, tell us a bit about um, the Better Start Literacy Approach and what you'll be discussing at the conference next week? Yeah, lovely to be on your show tonight and thanks very much for the uh, invitation. And uh, firstly, congratulations to Tamara and to Sharon for putting on this uh, wonderful, innovative way to bring researchers and practitioners from around the world together to talk and discuss about really important issues related to early childhood education. So um, it's great to be a part of it. Uh, yes, yeah, so the University of Canterbury over the last few years now, really, we've been developing what we've called a better start to literacy because we're really focused on helping to reduce current educational inequities. And we know how powerful early literacy success is in terms of being a really protective factor uh, that can lead to children's lifelong educational health and economic advantages. So, so we really wanted to look at um, how can we best help to support young uh, children and their families get a great start to literacy. So as part of uh, the Better Start National Science Challenge, and that's that 10-year uh, program of research that you referred to, Liam, uh, and we started this about five years ago, interestingly enough, after the the devastating earthquakes we of course, uh, back in 2011, many young uh, children and their families were really very disadvantaged and had a uh, very disrupted early childhood period. Uh, so we're coming into school with lower levels of oral language and uh, a period of you know, great stress in the families and um, early childhood experiences that were quite different because of the you know, in some cases, their entire neighbourhoods had been demolished post-earthquake. So really quite extraordinary times. So we wanted to look at really a more comprehensive way of helping them succeed in their early literacy. And so we really co-constructed the approach with early childhood teachers, class teachers, families, researchers. Uh, and we have a big team that we work with at um, the University of Canterbury and our Child Wellbeing Research Institute. And it's really focused on uh, a strengths-based approach. And, and I really liked uh, what Bob and Sue were talking about in terms of coming from a, a strengths-based place in terms of um, helping children transition successfully into school. And likewise, we really want to look at what children can achieve in their next steps for learning. So it's uh, it's been a comprehensive approach and in the keynote we'll talk about some of the really exciting results and the shifts that we're seeing uh, through working with families, 
focusing on those really key foundational skills around oral language, phonological awareness, early print knowledge, vocabulary, uh, oral narrative skills, uh, but doing it in a way that we're bringing speech language pathologists together with uh, early educators, the school educators, and uh, really helping to support Fano, as we call our extended families here, uh, really helping Fano to uh, support their young children coming into school. It sounds like some really uh, fascinating research being done there. I'm, I'm really interested, um, Gail, to hear that there was such a noticeable uh, impact from the Christchurch earthquake. And I think maybe that's the benefit of us sort of sitting here in Australia, we, it, was, it was such a big event, um, but you know, so many other events have happened since then, but that's, that's been really sort of clearly shown in New Zealand that they had this, this impact on children's, uh, particularly their literacy uh, skills. I'm, I'm really sure, are there particular sort of reasons for that? Were children missing out on access to um, early education or school for a period of time? Yes, well, um, we in some of the schools in the lower socioeconomic communities, unfortunately, which were hardest hit, they're on the eastern side of Christchurch that were really hard hit by the earthquake. So when your whole neighbourhood and your whole community uh, is affected, and in many ways, a lot of people left the area, they um, wouldn't be able to access or go to the early childhood uh, communities that they were used to going to. They, uh, schools were merging, some schools were closed for a, uh, completely for um, a period of time, so they uh, had schools sharing campuses. So huge disruption to that early education uh, period. And just that stress, you know, although in the news, of course, it seemed like it was one earthquake, but of course, it was um, a whole series of earthquakes that were really still happening over the, the first couple of years. In fact, I think there were like 10,000 earthquakes, uh, smaller earthquakes, obviously, in that first two year period. So a very uncertain time. And yes, in the, the schools that we were working in, we were looking at the children five years after the earthquakes of February 2011. So these children were coming into school at five years of age with that uh, quite disrupted childhood period. And about 61% of the cohort we followed had lower levels of oral language coming into school. So we wanted to look at ways that we could really boost that and accelerate that learning so they, they didn't have a long-term disadvantage. We wanted them to catch them up. Gail, I'm interested, you talked about it as a, um, it sounded like a shared endeavour of, of working together and something like that sounds like an, an enormous project to wrangle in a way. What were the things that made that successful? Well, you know, the community was amazing at coming together after the earthquakes to really support each other. And I think that was, in many sense, uh, you know, in many ways, I think Christchurch has become quite a resilient community. And even now in the, in the COVID period, uh, I think, um, you know, we've developed a really strong sense of community and supporting each other. So it, it broke down barriers. You know, we had... Um, really all the professionals coming together, 
very willingly and openly to share ideas and support the community and support children most in need. And that's now I see um, in the work that I do, it's, it's actually been a huge advantage around um, interdisciplinary research. Uh, we set up in our city a new health precinct, which uh, brings together different health professionals, uh, um, certainly breaking down barriers between education and health and coming together as a community. So yes, it was, uh, uh, although an incredibly stressful time for families, it was also uh, a way that has advanced us in terms of our collaborative research and collaborations across professions. So it sounds like it was a, almost the research and the shared endeavour there was a healing process for, for the community. Yes, in many ways. And I think that's the benefit now of our Better Start Literacy approach that we've now extended that past um, that first pilot uh, data. We've now had over a thousand uh, children and their families uh, come through the Better Start approach that we're collecting data from, still refining it, taking, um, hearing from the voices of uh, the children, their teachers, their families, what they're liking about the approach and really looking at what's helping accelerate their early literacy development because we're really excited by the findings that we are getting that children that uh, are coming into school with speech and language difficulties, children may be at risk for dyslexia, or children that have other additional challenges um, are really making greater gains in their early literacy than they are, make, they are making in the controlled condition, which is their typical literacy um, early instruction. And of course, our children coming into school in New Zealand, are, they come in usually just around their fifth birthday, sometimes on the day of their fifth birthday. Uh, so um, they're quite uh, young in age in terms of um, developing their skills. So, um, you know, by six years of age, uh, we we see strong growth in that early period from five to six. And we're actually adapting the approach down now to um, our kindergartens and early childhood sector for three and four year olds to really help build those skills even earlier. That's wonderful to hear. And, and, and again, sort of coming at this from a very early education uh, biased perspective, one of the, uh, the I know that uh, the, the New Zealand curriculum for early education, Te Fariki, I hope I'm pronouncing that close to Yes, close well to done, Liam. Um, you know, was <laughs> a big influence, <laughs> was, uh, was a big influence on Australia's early years learning framework and has been, you know, something I've um, you know, admired and, 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 and viewed uh, during my time in early education. Um, has, has that sort of, uh, has that, that curriculum framework in New Zealand been part of, of that work with, with, with early literacy you've been doing as well? Are there crossovers in terms of that engagement you were just talking about with three and four year olds? Yes, absolutely. So that's the the background context for our all of our early childhood work, um, and that feeds through into the um, early um, curriculum into school as well. So it's it's um, and you know listening to Bob and Sue, we're also having similar conversations around that transition into school, and helping to um, move some of the great things about Tifariki and the building the children's language skills, their sense of belonging, their sense of independence through into that new entrant in year one at school. But um, our framework from the Better Start Literacy approach for our three and four-year-olds, we call uh, Words Can Pop. 
So, you know, it focuses on words being word learning, can being can you keep the conversation going. So those quality conversations that we know are so important in those early play context and early learning context to enrich their language. And then the POP stands for the P for phonological awareness, the O for oral narrative and the final P for print awareness. So we're enriching all of those skills with working with families the early childhood teachers uh, and helping to um, do those in different contexts, so play context, but particularly shared book reading contexts. And um, we've developed a, a new set of readers really that are freely available online for families through our Better Start uh, Literacy Approach website um, that give them the prompts and ideas of how to use those stories to develop their language. That's wonderful. Uh, thanks so much, Gail. Tamara, I didn't know if you wanted to jump in here and talk about, uh, you know, the, you know, Gail's contribution to to early childhood voices. Oh, I I thank you, Liam. I I did take myself off mute, hoping to just say that, Gail. I'm so looking forward to hearing your full keynote, and um, I I think. You know, I've done a little bit of work to do with interprofessional work before between early childhood education and speech um, professionals and practitioners. And I'm just in awe of the way that um, you all seem to have worked together. With, but I think, it, 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 you know, you emphasise the strengths-based approach and it's so clear that you had a very strong philosophy um, from that perspective, but also from that community perspective that was bigger than, you know, which which of these disciplines is the more important or more significant. And um, I'm really, you know, looking forward to hearing more about how it's all worked out. Oh, thank you. Yes. And a lot of our work has been very influenced by one of my close colleagues, uh, Professor Angus McFarlane, who's a professor of Māori research here at the University of Canterbury. And so as well as that strength base, we do take a very strong culturally responsive framework. So we really want to particularly see that our, our work is enhancing the language and early literacy success of our Māori children and our Pacifica children. Uh, and we're doing that in lots of different ways, uh, uh, particularly in our early childhood centre. Um, I think they lead the way sometimes in education around really embracing uh, a Māori worldview and their work and making sure that the activities and the stories they're reading are relevant uh, for a range of cultures, but particularly for Māori and Pacifica. Uh, and just in the in it, the language we use, integrating uh, te reo Māori words and vocabulary into their literacy uh, right from the start so that you know as we're introducing them to the early reading activities they're seeing seeing themselves in the stories and they're hearing their language a little bit in the stories so um, that strengths-based approach with culturally relevant and culturally responsive approach has been uh, I think really powerful in, in the work that's um, happening in our early childhood centers and um, schools I know one of the things we sort of look at at Australia from afar over to New Zealand is um, that work in incorporating Māori culture in, in respectful ways. I know that's something that Australia, uh, in, in our early education space, you know, we're still having you know, really difficult and challenging conversations around the incorporation of Indigenous perspectives and uh, the, you know, the, the, the stories and experiences of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. Mm -hmm. So it's always... You know, great to hear that that's such a strong focus on, you know, on 
projects like these and this work in this early education space is that it is culturally uh, you know relevant and um, and you, you know, of, of value in that space is there in terms of your you know presentation Gail what are you sort of most hoping that you know particularly you know, practitioners or people who are working with young children will sort of take away from, from what you have to say next week? Mm. I, th I think it's really just around that message of the critical importance of early success and early literacy success. So therefore building those foundational skills that helps children and their whanau and their families uh, to help develop that success. Because what we see is, uh, you know, success builds success, doesn't it? You know, when young children uh, start the skills they need to succeed in their early reading and writing attempts, then they are motivated to keep going. Their families feel very proud. They're more engaged in their children's learning. And that's what we want to see for all children. And unfortunately, so often we see uh, some children coming into school that then experience um, difficulties with their early learning and very quickly, even after about six months at school, can get quite turned off uh, from wanting to engage with reading. So that's what we're trying to really turn around. So I think what we're, uh, our work through the Better Start Literacy approach is really designed to see how can we help both the children and their whānau really build a success model rather and that comes from the strengths-based framework around thinking about what they're achieving now and what their next steps are for learning and celebrating each step along the way so that it's not necessarily about comparing what sort of reading book you're on compared to somebody else it's just really talking about the skills they have now their next steps for learning and ensuring that's always in a positive framework well, I hope for listeners out there that has whetted your appetite for <laughs> early childhood voices. Um, it, it, it definitely, I think, will be one to, to listen to. We're big fans of books and reading. In fact, one of our most recent episodes was Leanne and I literally, I think, just spending an hour talking about our favourite children's books in early education spaces before digressing into just talking about our favourite books from uh, as parents and as young children yes. ourselves. But, um Yes, yeah, so, it's, so it's just such a great way to engage children with, you know, there's so, so many wonderful high quality children's books and learning how to use those books in ways that do enhance their oral language. I mean, that's another key part of our work with Fano and families is to, you know, it's one thing to read the story. Of course, that's a good first step, but we know we can get so much more from good quality children's storybooks to develop their oral language and their vocabulary. So um, we place a lot of emphasis on the types of books, um, enjoying with your children and how to get the most out of them. Leah, maybe Gail would agree to come on our next time that we talk about children's books and actually add a level of expertise to our conversation. <laughs> oh, no, it sounds like you're like. doing a great job. <laughs> well, it might be good to get some New Zealand text in there. I don't think we, we listed any New Zealand authors. No, we didn't. Address that no. engagement issue. Oh, yes, we um, have some wonderful authors and wonderful illustrators too. We're working with some very talented, uh, mm. you know, really bringing the stories to life with their beautiful artwork. Wonderful. Well, wow. thanks so much for giving us a bit of a, an overview of your, your work there, Gal. But now I'm going to turn to Leanne and ask her to remove her co-host hat and put on her guest of the podcast hat and talk about uh, her own presentation at the conference next week, which um, I actually don't, I haven't seen the abstract for. So I'm, I, I, this is, I'm looking forward to hearing what you're going to be talking about, Leanne. I'm super excited, Leanne. 
Adam, that you're asking me about this because, first of all, I can't believe I'm in this esteemed company and I'm being given some airtime here. And secondly, because um, we usually take the mickey out of each other on this uh, podcast and uh, now I'm going to get my chance to be taken seriously by Liam. So I'm pretty excited by this. Um, so I, I won't get carried away, though. Um, the the I've got two presentations in this, both with um, both presentations with wonderful colleagues, and the the focus of these presentations are theory, it's a theoretical focus in both instances, uh, looking at uh, the emergence and development of leading, and in considering this. Uh, rather than the positional role of leadership, it's actually the emergence and development of leading as a socially just practice um, within a collective. And so this is opening up the opportunity for uh, educators to develop their um, skills and their knowledge and values um, that shape their leading. And this is um, obviously to it really sort of emboldens our early childhood practice and the future of early childhood education. And in this research, there were two theories that I linked to. One was called complexity leadership theory, and the other was the theory of practice architectures. Now, the complexity leadership theory focus is with my new colleagues at the University of Wollongong, and we have a uh, we've got just the best little team that has been operating only together since March. Uh, and we uh, put in place some initiatives when COVID came about and then laid a, a theoretical lens over the work that we did, the theoretical lens of complexity leadership theory. Now, I, with this presentation, we kind of went a little bit off script and we <clears throat> took a, a, a more humorous approach to this, but certainly the subject matter is not, um, it, it, you know, we're not, being frivolous with the subject matter. But because we were so engaged in the work and we enjoyed each other's company in this work that we were doing so much, uh, the focus was on also enjoying um, the presentation and a call to action for people thinking about how to consider their leadership. And complexity leadership theory is all about emergence. It's about um, self-organisation and it's very decentralised. And these were the, the context of the practice that we had when we were working um, on this initiative. So we, I, I guess what we were doing is um, putting out there that it's a, a great option to think about when you're thinking about um, theoretical concepts of leadership and uh, also the value um, that this gave rise to in people being able to lead regardless of their position. So that was that was one presentation and there's actually music in that presentation I don't know whether Tamara's seen it I'm I'm terrified that she's going to look at it and not and disassociate herself with me but anyway no, that's, that's that's never going to happen Leanne <laughs> never <laughs> anyway we we really um enjoyed putting that together and then the, the second presentation is with my beautiful PhD buddy um, Mandy Cook and we are focusing on the theory of practice architectures and we conducted this presentation as a more as a conversation between ourselves. We've been so fortunate to engage in this theory um, with Professor Stephen Chemis and uh, the the other architects of the theory. And um, the theory of practice architectures focuses on first the practices, and then it focuses on the arrangements within organisations that make 
those practices possible. And the um, arrangements within the organisation are framed within the, the cultural discursive, the material economic and the social political. And I think um, our listening audience would be very familiar with the sorts of things around culture and language that we use in early childhood settings, um, the resources and materials that we have, our regulations that make practices possible as well. And then finally, the social political, the, the relationships that we share um, and the sort of political arrangements that are in organisations, specifically in early childhood sites. Mandy's work was on um, educator risk-taking. Mine was actually on leadership and leading. And uh, we have a conversation between us about about the practices within um, early childhood education settings and then the arrangements that make those practices possible. So they're the two, and I think Lisa would be very proud of me, Liam, because I have said there are two things here that I'm talking about. Um, but I, I think in all, all of the work that I've been um, doing over many years, but then specifically focusing in the research area, is about the development of um of leading and of leadership and uh, have been so fortunate to undertake these studies to be able to think about leadership and leading through a different lens. Well, Leanne, it's not just that you're doing two things, it's that it sounds like you're going to be bantering with Mandy. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of bantering. Well, we, we're very organised, Mandy and I are very organised in our presentation, but um, we, what we wanted to do was share um, some I, I suppose some of the elements of the theory um, to to actually bring people to this theory as well because it is it does have a very practical orientation and um, I have to say both of those theories for me I've I've used in practice um, repeatedly over over the past few years and now in my new um, workplace and we we would wanted to share our um, I suppose our enthusiasm for the theory and um, and you know call people to to uh, consider it as well because it is it's a fantastic theory for early childhood education as and as a site based theory it is it is very um, it, you know it can be enacted in a unique uh, way in each different site. I'm wondering um and and I think the problem with 2020 is it's sort of COVID has sort of loomed over everything and I know this has been a bit, of a, a bit of a thread through our podcast episodes of this year, which is probably not helpful for the rest of our guests, but we've been talking about how, you know, how there's, there's this potential for the pandemic and the government and community response to early education to reshape how we think about um, early education, even if we think about the government, you know, description of it as an essential service. But we've also, I know, talked at different times there because this is such a um, a, a key area of expertise and of interest of yours about leadership. Um, if we think we're sort of getting towards the end of the year now, I know we've touched on these points at different times and it may not be that you um, have anything specifically different to say, but given we're, we're trying to sort of wrap this into one one discussion, has, you know, has um, the, the that sort of COVID experience and the, the particular stresses and challenges of leadership, um, has that you know, change how you're thinking about, you know, the, and maybe the particular theory of practice architecture, has that changed your thinking on that in relation to COVID-19? That's a very garbled question, Leanne, but luckily you're the one person I can ask of because you're, you're used to them. <laughs> no, I, I think I just felt really fortunate 
um, a, a pandemic made the theories that I was using very real. Thank you, pandemic. Um, but it, I think it, the thing about things like complexity leadership theory is that it really, it really is. You can lay it over the, the COVID experience. And say, okay, what what actually emerges out of that? And talking with centre leaders as well, not in that piece of research, but more recently um, with the group that that we um, engage with, is that it people were thinking more about how they were spending their time and where they were investing their time because they had to be, I suppose, very, um, I don't want to say efficient, but effective, I suppose. And even talking most recently, um, because we are researching leaders' experiences of um, COVID and how they use their time. Um, and what people are saying to us was that in the past, they may not have necessarily, they were always trying to make sure that they had the administrative elements and the, um, you know, everything sort of covered off. But what they found was that they could invest their time in people and it felt like that was the most important investment that they could make and they didn't feel bad that they were diverted from the administrative tasks, which I think is a very, that's really interesting. And Liam, I'm sure you'll kind of identify with that and with the the um the centers that you're you're connected with is that everybody's always on this kind of operational you know get sort of um wheel that they you know the little the little mouse wheel of trying to get everything sort of operational administrative done and I know you go a long way to try and alleviate that for your centers but it, it was this um almost the decision that people made was the investment in relationships and in people and spending time with educators and, and families uh, was the most important investment that they could make in their role of leading. Liam, um, Sue and I in our work in transition and so on have seen something very similar, I think, where where I think one, one of the things that COVID has done is highlight what is important and what is not so important. We all know that, um, you know, if it can, the urgent will trump the really important and significant things almost every time. The urgent needs to be dealt with now and then, you know, now immediately. Um, and we found in, in our transition work the same sort of investment um, in people perhaps in different ways from the way in which we have done it, because people don't necessarily have the same amount of time, but they still see that there are very important things to be done. And so I, I see, um, you know, and we've seen it with, with leaders, both in the prior to school setting and, and the school settings, um, having to deal with the particular really significant issues, because they're the ones that we can actually deal with and some of the other perhaps less important but more urgent things perhaps go by the board. Yeah, isn't that, and I think that's so interesting, isn't it, Bob? Because I think that um, in talking with some leaders, they've they've in the past felt guilty about spending that time, but now they see, okay, this is the, you know, this is where they, this is the best investment that they can make. So it's, 
I suppose it's changed that way of thinking because there is a lot of administrative and operational um, roles to attend to, but this this is the best investment. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, it doesn't it doesn't say that the leaders are not still doing those um, other administrative things and so on, perhaps in their own time and and perhaps in different ways. But I think what it has done, what COVID has done for us, is highlight the things that are really important. Um, and people are working on those uh, because they're the things that they can see make the real differences. Absolutely. And I think, like I said, it's been it's been tricky not to have that sort of context of 2020 overwhelm everything. But the I think the impact on leadership and I think that idea has kind of crystallised what's important around a range of uh, a range of areas. But again, oh, Leanne, I want to spend more time with you. I want to spend more time with Gail. I want to spend more time with Sue and Rob. But hopefully, uh, you will be able to hear more from all of them uh, once you've registered for early childhood. Uh, sorry, uh, early childhood voices conference. But Tamara, I might give you the last word before we, we say farewell to everyone. We've kept everyone up late enough, I think. But um. Now, is there is there anything else you want to say to me? If, if for some reason you've heard all these amazing sort of uh, prologues to these amazing presentations, and you're still not sure whether you're going to take part, what would you what would you sort of say to everyone out there who's hasn't quite clicked register yet tomorrow? Oh, I'd, I'd just say get in and give it a go, give it a go. What have you got to lose? Um, and the great thing is, once you've registered. Um, you've got ongoing access, so you don't have to watch things only next week. Um, nearly everything will be available on an ongoing basis. So it's really worth um, registering, getting your, your booklet to help you find your way amongst things. We've also got a Facebook page I should have mentioned earlier, Liam, um, called Early Childhood Voices 2020 that will help people connect with others, um, maybe connect with the keynote speakers. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of reasons to... Um, to um, to register and and see what you and your team can get out of it. Well, I'll just echo my uh, the the other speakers we've heard tonight and say congratulations, Tamara and your colleagues. It's a really it is it is a, a pretty amazing achievement given all given all the challenges that are uh, going on. <laughs> thank you, thank you very much, Lemon. Thanks yeah. everybody. We just thank you to the all of the speakers. Oh, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been such a privilege to talk with you this evening. Thanks, everyone. It's been really enjoyable. Look forward yeah. to the conference. I'm certainly looking forward to the conference. Thank you, Tamara. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Sue. Thank you, Gail. It's just amazing. And I can't wait to hear um, your keynotes and, and all of the other speakers. And Tamara, it's just such a wonderful opportunity. So thank you for, you know, offering that also to people like me who are, are researchers, you know, young baby researchers, older <laughs> baby researchers. <laughs> it's, it's our great pleasure. You have been listening to The Early Education Show. You can find show notes and links for this episode and all our other episodes at earlyeducationshow.com. The show is hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Liam McNicholas and produced by Liam McNicholas. The music is by Jazar at betterwithmusic.com. Please subscribe, rate and review the show in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps others find the show. Get in touch with us at Early Edu Show on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email at earlyedushow at gmail.com. See you next time.